Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and this is a bonus episode of the Pillar Podcast. My guest on this bonus episode is Archbishop Joseph Kurtz, whose retirement as the Archbishop of Louisville was announced just this month. Archbishop Kurtz served previously as the President of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, um, has been the Archbishop of Louisville since 2007, and was before that the Bishop of Knoxville, Tennessee and a priest of Allentown, Pennsylvania. He's celebrating next month 50 years as a priest. Archbishop, thanks so much for being with me. Your successor was announced just last week, and you are in kind of a temporary leadership position of your diocese right now, but you will be um, uh, retiring on March 30th. Is that right? That's correct. We're we're welcoming uh, Archbishop Shelton uh, with a, a massive installation at that time, and uh, and then uh, I'll begin retirement. I'm I'm technically the apostolic administrator for uh, these a uh, uh, couple of weeks, and uh, uh, it's a blessing to now be part of the transition. Well, congratulations to you. What does your own transition look like? You you've been. Um, I, I I think you um, you put in your papers, so to speak, a little while ago. So you've had some time to think about what your retirement will look like. What um, what's next for you? Well, uh, let, let me say a little bit about my personality. I, I tend to run very heavily on adrenaline, <laughs> and so if there are loose ends or things I need to do, I, I, I tend to want to attend to them and then. Uh, kind of take a deep breath and relax. So uh, I'm still in the midst of that adrenaline part. But um, JD, I've been very influenced uh, by the experience I had when uh, I discovered that I had cancer. Yeah. And that's, uh, let's see, this coming November will be actually three years, believe it or not, since my surgery. So, uh, well, uh, in April will be uh, three years from uh, the time in which the difficulties began that, that led to the discovery of the cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, what, one of the things, uh, Chris, when you, you're not expecting to, to uh, uh, get a diagnosis of cancer, uh, I, I guess I thought I'd be healthy forever. Right. Doesn't everybody. And, uh, but I must say that uh, in going through the process uh, of chemotherapy and immunotherapy and then the surgery, that I had, uh, while I was able to continue to uh, provide leadership uh, and care within the archdiocese, I I was in in North Carolina, and I was, uh, at that time, taking advantage of Duke Cancer Institute, and they did a wonderful job. I can't say enough about that. Uh, But you know what I called it? I call it my cancer sabbatical. Yeah. I I had never really... uh, even thought about taking a sabbatical. And sure. uh, you probably know this coming month, in just about a month, I'll, I'll be c- celebrating my golden uh, anniversary as a priest. So right. I'll be 50 years a priest. So that uh, I, I kind of more have that as a, a little bit of a, a point of, of uh, demarcation between maybe fully active and preparing for transition. Sure. And so that's basically the last two years I've been in that process. I've been less engaged uh, on a national level mm-hmm. and uh, I hope fully engaged within the archdiocese. Um, so uh, I realize theoretically in my head that there's a new chapter about to begin. I have the benefit of a number of 
Bishop Emeriti, who, who I um, admire greatly, who've been good enough to give me some friendly advice, and uh, I take it very seriously. So at this point, uh, I'm going to just try to slow down, try to uh, enjoy a pace that's a little less engaged. Mm -hmm. But in truth, uh, the adrenaline's still flowing until I think uh, Archbishop Shelton is able to be installed. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure there are lots of things to to get off your desk too, and to make sure aren't waiting for him on his desk. Yeah. And, and, and reaching out to people. I mean, the, the uh, I've I've always felt that uh, as, as a a Bishop, as an overseer uh, more than projects, the relationships are key. Yeah. Uh, And so a a lot of it has to do with uh, helping in a healthy way to transition especially leadership relationships uh, of our priests, of diocesan staff. And I've really been very pleased with uh, the way in which that goes, has has been going, I should say. Archbishop, you mentioned that time of uh, diagnosis of your cancer. You you were diagnosed with bladder cancer in 2019 and, of course, underwent surgery. And at that point, you had been 20 years a bishop. Um, You you say now it's sort of the first time in that 20 years, maybe even in in, in your whole priesthood, that you slowed down. What were, the, what were the real lessons or what was that just the necessity of stopping like for you? Um, well, I think the first lesson is that uh, the diocese seems to be surviving pretty well with less of a commitment on my part. Sure. In other words, uh, it's the freedom of, of simply letting others take step forwards. I, I, I will say something, though, uh, J.D., it's, it wasn't a complete change, mm-hmm. because I often say that when I uh, would have my holy hour, or uh, for a long, long time, I was able to go once a month to Gethsemane, the Abbey of Gethsemane, uh, for uh, kind of a full, full day and two nights uh, each month. Uh, I would bring often the, the pastoral issues or challenges uh, to prayer and would often go come away with some great insights. And most of the insights were, I don't really have to do everything. Yeah. There are, are many beautiful people who even in the deepest of problems are coming forward uh, to help and with solutions. So um, it, it was, I guess each time it's kind of an act of communio, isn't it? where you're, you're aware that with both within the diocese and within the larger universal church, there is a need for Christ to act uh, through others as well as yourself and for you to be uh, in a healthy relationship with others. Sure. And that's maybe what I learned a little bit. Yeah. As you look back, um, not just on that time, but now as you kind of have the opportunity to look back on more than 20 years as a bishop, almost 50 years as a priest, what are the things that sort of most stand out to you as, as uh, highlights or some of the most meaningful aspects of, those, of that ministry? I'm glad you're, you're, you're asking that. Uh, I'm doing it every day as I get my mail. And I get a letter from someone. I think, oh, my gosh, I'm getting a letter from someone where I was first pastor back in Pennsylvania. Oh, wow, cool. Or uh, I get a letter from someone who who worked in Catholic charities uh, from the 1970s, and and uh, we reminisced, and um, it it brought back a whole a richness of what was happening in that decade. Yeah. So um, I guess the first thing I would say is w- when I was ordained a, a priest, I, I asked that I might 
place myself at the service of Christ and others, and that I might serve well and serve him well. And um, that has been an adventure much richer than I ever imagined. And now as I'm getting these letters or phone calls, or now it's emails, of course, uh, uh, each little story, if you will, is, sure. is an opportunity for me to kind of open a chapter in my sure. life. Yeah. So I, I would get back to the notion of relationships, that, sure. that Christ uh, speaks to us, especially in encounters. I think Pope Francis, certainly uh, Pope John Paul, St. John Paul and Pope Benedict have been very great in talking about uh, the encounters in which Christ comes to us, not only in prayer, but also in our relationship with other people. And that would be uh, maybe the first lesson is being able to see how how I've been able to minister to others, but they also have helped me yeah. uh, in expanding and uncovering my gifts and uh, helping me getting through the times when I didn't think I had the gifts I needed to, yeah, to be. Sure. Yeah. Ordained a priest in 1972. Now it's 2022. Uh, a lot has changed in the church in that time. Um, what do you see as uh, different about the life of the church now? And wh- where do you see some of that going? What should we expect in the future in the life of the church? Well, a, a very good question. Um, while I was in the seminary, of course, uh, I was experiencing also the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. And so uh, r- recall that that mo- the council pretty much ended and the documents began to be explored while I was in theology. Right. So literally, um, the, the, the textbooks changed. Mm-hmm. And uh, but we were in that interim time in which they didn't change completely all at once. Right. Uh, the liturgy changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, call for a greater involvement of, of laity occurred. So a lot of things were happening at the same time. And like any change in the church, it, it, it didn't occur uniformly. Right. Some places tended to move faster than others. And um I think in the in my first parishes, I was in two parishes before I was sent to the uh, Diocese of Scranton to work at a college seminary. Uh, Those parishes had, I would say, great stability. One was rural and one was in the city of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And um, the role of the associate pastor was fairly clear. You, you kind of were supposed to bring your ball of energy and really reach right. out and, and extend yourself to others. So uh, I was, I think that was a good fit for me right. to be able to do parish visitations and to be involved in, in parish groups. Um, there was also at that time, uh, I think a healthy ecumenical attitude, as I recall, there, there were a lot of it, uh, opportunities to serve others. And even though I, had, I was not yet in Catholic Charities work, um, my tendency was to, to, to reach out socially to others and get engaged in what's happening within in the community itself. Yeah. I remember uh, when I was in the seminary, I guess a canon lawyer, I forget, this is a good, good uh, compliment <laughs> to you, uh, said, now remember that... that uh, when you are sent to a parish, that territory, you're serving all the people, not just Catholics. That's right. So I, um, I took that very seriously. I thought that was a, a beautiful image of, of reaching out to serve all humanity. Yeah. To uh, allow the grace of Christ 
through me to touch others. So very institutional. I don't think it it has so dramatically changed that there are not uh, strong institutional presences. Last night, I uh, confirmed 75 young people at St. Bernadette Church and uh, um, read their letters ahead of time and uh, interacted with a a full church of people. Uh, There were a lot of similarities between the conversations there and the ones I had when I was first ordained in Mm. 1972. Mm. But I do think that uh, certainly expectations have increased, I think, within our culture. Mm-hmm. I think increasingly uh, people are, are making active choices of, uh, of their own spiritual life. Uh, I, I fear that there are sometimes when uh, the lure of, of uh, change and opportunity and internet options and shopping and all the things that wrap up into what we call our modern culture and what we also call secularism. Mm-hmm. It has, has uh, in a sense, uh, grabbed the voice of people. There's probably more privatization mm-hmm. going on now than there was before. We, I think people tended to join in activities within the community a little more at that time. So I worry sometimes about that isolation. Uh, but last night I had the confirmation and you could have fooled me because there was a there was a great great enthusiasm there, and I would say among the the young people, they were all eighth graders. So uh, among them, their sponsors, their parents, etc. So has that changed? I mean, what you've seen, like your concern about isolation or maybe less engagement, has that changed um, your own approach to the formation of priests? Well, that's a very good question. Naturally, we rely very heavily on our, our interaction with the local seminaries mm-hmm. in terms of formation of priests. Mm-hmm. But um, as, as we look at the dialogue and the way in which we look at how uh, we choose seminaries or uh, how we interact with, with seminaries, uh, I would say um, the desire for a, a, a priest who is, both holy and deeply pastoral, I don't think that has changed dramatically. Mm. Perhaps the the gifts that someone has today uh, are going to be used differently precisely because, um, for one thing, the face of the church on parish life is different. You know, Mm. you have many more parish leaders. You have uh, many more uh, challenges of a pastor to be able to interact in a healthy way with other leaders. Mm-hmm. I think much more than when, when I was first ordained as a priest, we didn't, we didn't have uh, all that many parish leaders. The staff was not necessarily large. The paid mm-hmm. staff certainly was not large in parishes. Right. And uh, except for very defined groups, uh, you didn't have uh an extreme amount of lay leaders. There's become kind of a rise of a lay professional class between men. Yeah. yeah. In in, in many ways, the ecclesiastical, ecclesial lay uh, ministers has, has risen. I think the the role of deacons Mm -hmm. and deacons wives has risen. We had last night, uh, three uh, very fine deacons and their wives who were part of the gathering. And uh, that's been integrated into the life of the church. Yeah. 
Uh, Archbishop, a lot of our listeners um, know you, are familiar with you, first sort of came to be aware of you during uh, your time as president of the USCCB. You were president of the Bishops' Conference from 2013 until 2016. What what were some of the things that you um, look back on uh, from the time of your presidency, things that you're proud of, things that you learned um, in, in that role? Yeah. Well, of course, a, a major one was the visit of our Holy Father. That's right. Uh, it was really a it was really a privilege to be able to prepare for and to welcome Pope Francis to the United States, uh, and that would have been in September of 2015. That's right. So it was right uh, almost in the middle of uh, the time of my three years of service as a as a uh, president. Uh, I, I think a second area would would be my hope that I was able in my uh, approach to treat each bishop with dignity and to call forth a true communion. I, I do believe that, that that communion requires us to bring our best efforts to whatever the task is, whatever the topic is. So mm-hmm. unity doesn't mean we won't disagree. Right. Uh, we need to bring our, our best effort to persuade people, but it's always within the, the notion of a sense of community, of communion. So I, I hope that as I look back on my three years as service, that, that I was able to uh, foster that sense of communio among our bishops, uh, uh, beginning with getting to know each one's name. Yeah. It starts with very practical things, sure. but also with taking very seriously the topics mm-hmm. that uh, we would need to address as we came together and to do it in a respectful way, to find a ways. Part of my job was at some point to make sure that people had a hearing, but also that the hearings had some conclusion. Yeah. And uh, and that's maybe maybe my social work background uh, was of help to me in, in the, uh, the kinds of skills that that fostered. So I, I, I would think of, of those areas. Um, naturally, the issues of involvement with the synods mm-hmm. were also important. The Synod on Evangelization in 2012, I would have been at that time the vice president. And then the two synods on the family were both exercises not only in work in Rome with our Holy Father and other bishops from throughout the world, but also uh, in the interaction with uh, uh, the bishops in preparation for those. Mm -hmm. I'd say a third thing, and that is the visits that occurred. You know, Mm -hmm. I I was blessed to be able, uh, after uh, Typhoon Yolanda in the Philippines, Mm -hmm. to go, to officially go to the Philippines, I was able, uh, in the midst of what was then a time of crisis, to go to Ukraine mm-hmm. in 2015, mm-hmm. uh, to go to Haiti five mm-hmm. years after the earthquake that mm-hmm. was there, uh, to go to Vietnam uh, shortly after I finished my my work. I'm probably leaving some important place out too, uh, but th- but those those visits in which I was interacting with Episcopal conferences and others throughout the world was uh, a way of participating in, I think, the universal aspect of the church. It, you know, um, you mentioned uh, first right off the bat, fostering that unity and fostering communion. And uh, you, you're obviously known for that because you were called on at, at the conclusion of a very fractious year in the life of the church just recently and at, at the November bishops meeting to kind of, um, after the bishops had had a lot of uh, 
yeah, fractious and contentious debate at their June meeting over this Eucharistic coherence document to, to lead uh, a day of prayer and reflection for all the bishops. H- how did you approach that? You know, that was a really hard year, I think, for yeah. the church. Um, well, um, I looked at the readings for the day. I thought it's always, it's always, it's always to begin with some, the Lord speaking through sacred scripture. Um, I, I also reflected on uh, the notion of, uh, of being a Barnabas, uh, mm-hmm. of being a son of encouragement. Mm. Uh, by some coincidence, I had, uh, I think it was in, in, in the Cathedral of St. Louis in New Orleans, my first uh, June happened to be the feast day of St. Barnabas. Mm -hmm. And so I preached on that. And uh, I I guess I was uh, blessed that most of the uh, bishops didn't remember that. (laughs) So I I actually used uh, some of the basis of what I had said at that time in the homily on the feast of St. Barnabas to talk about what does it mean to be a son of encouragement? Mm. And I, I used it uh, by, by uh, witnessing, first of all, uh, to see the bishops as uh, individual men who are seeking Christ in their life and doing it together. So I began by actually talking about my sister Rose and the effect she had on, on my vocation. And I shared in, in some detail about that so that they could begin to think who has been the mentor or mentors in their own lives mm. who have been the source of encouragement for them. And then I talked about, um, I used the a beautiful passage that Pope Francis quotes of Pope Benedict uh, from, uh, from Deus Caritas Est, his, his quote about that, uh, that the life of a Christian is, I'm not going to precisely quote this, but the life of a Christian is uh, not so much uh, about a lofty ideal or an ethical choice, but rather an encounter with an event, a person of Jesus, uh, in order to uh, bring about new horizons and decisive directions. And I focused on encouragement being new horizons. What does it mean for us as bishops to come together and not be afraid of what the landscape is saying. What are the new things in our culture that, that Christ needs to touch? And how can we, um, in a civil way, persuade each other? How can we have a chance to both by listening and by speaking, bring the best efforts so that we can come up with what we call, might call decisive directions? Yeah. And then the final point that I made was, Uh, that we uh, need also to be pastorally sons of encouragement to one another. Let's, I said, I told a story of of when I first went to Knoxville with my brother Georgie, and I won't get into the whole story with with you, but but I mentioned that um, in the process, we do come together as uh, as a body, and we get to see each other and people we've made friends with, and that's a good thing. But what a shame it would be if we did not widen that circle to include at least one more bishop, Mm -hmm. get to know his name, Mm -hmm. find out what his joys, sorrows and griefs are. And and it's in that way we build uh, in a deeper way communio or communion with one another. In other words, it's not simply a business meeting of some corporation. It's an act of communion. So that's basically what I gave. And I, I, 
I, I was pleased with uh, the response of um, so many of the bishops told me they thought it was helpful to them. Well, it seems like it, I, I heard that too, and it seems in a certain way like it worked, so to speak, because you know the November meeting was, had had a very different character than the June meeting, and so many bishops said that. Well, that's God's been. grace alive, you know. <laughs> we, we don't want to get we don't want to get away uh, get in the way of the grace of Jesus Christ. And right. He may use he may use a talk, but he he uses many other things too. So, but I agree with you. I think the tone. Uh, was was respectful. It was also the first time in quite a while that we were face to face. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that you know that with the COVID experience, uh, that means a lot to be face to face. So is that you know? There's a term that a lot of people feel like is nebulous, and they don't know quite how to define it. And I wonder if maybe you just put your finger on it. Is that synodality? Those things you were just talking about. Well, um, I'm always learning what synodality means. <laughs> Me too. Me yeah, too. yeah. Uh, but I think our Holy Father has said it well in terms of, of walking together, of journeying together, of listening twice as much as we speak. I think he's right on that. I think it's listening afresh to the words of Christ. That's what I've told our people, that the first person we listen to is Christ. So, so the scripture and tradition of our church handed on is something we listen to together. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I said earlier the the cross of, of isolation mm-hmm. that has so often uh, I think affected people and brought about great unhappiness. The church is a great remedy, yeah, for that a great remedy. Yeah. Someone once told me, JD. They said, uh, "I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go alone. I want you to come with me." Mm. And I love that. I, I love that notion of. Uh, of, of communion, that, that we are not, quote, in it alone. And that's always been our theology, the body of Christ. Yeah. Archbishop, I want to go back to your, uh, your term as presidency, but I want to go even before that. You were vice president, obviously, before you were president of the conference. And I think some of our listeners just wonder on a practical level, like, how does that happen? How did you how does a bishop decide to be to run for vice presidency of the conference? Well, uh, I, I don't think you run. In other words, I think uh, I guess let his name the, be the option off, is guess, you, yeah. you, you don't run away. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the process is pretty simple, and that is that, uh, that when it comes time for election of the president and vice president, every bishop, I think in the United States, I guess maybe every voting bishop, it may not, I'm, I may not have the privilege of doing this anymore, but uh, the bishops who are active are all asked to give, I think, five names. Mm-hmm. and the five names of the bishops whom they think would serve well as president. And from uh, those names, there is uh, uh, the work of the general secretary compiles confidentially those names and then comes up with the ones that tend to be mentioned the most. Mm-hmm. And then that goes through the work of reaching out, saying, uh, uh, a number of your brother bishops have said that they believe you have the qualities to be able to lead the conference. Are you willing to allow your name to be listed? Mm-hmm. And then based on that, you come up with 10 names. And from that, or is the election first of uh, the president and then of the vice president? There is a, there is a process, I believe, that uh, the only thing I can't remember is usually whenever there's a vote, you have a chance to have some a name mentioned from the floor. From the floor, that's and right. I got I to tell you, I, I'm now blanking on that. I'm not sure if that happens with this list of ten or not. 
Yeah, but I, the point is that you, you're really not not running as, as much as you, you you have an option to run away. <laughs> and if you don't, if people think you had those qualities, then uh, I think you, you have a duty to serve it, it, unless you have a good reason that you can't yeah. health or whatever. But so it's one thing I suppose I suppose to have the affirmation from your brother bishops that they want you on the list. Um, it must be quite another thing to be just sitting there in the meeting and suddenly realize that, uh, hey, you're uh, you're going to be elected the vice president. You're going to take on these responsibilities for the conference and then probably become the president after that. What what did that feel like to you? What was that experience like for you? Well, well, remember, I, I was already at that time the treasurer. Mm-hmm. And and prior to that, I had been the, the chair of the uh, committee on uh, family life mm-hmm. and had been on a lot of boards. I had uh, the privilege, I guess, when I was a priest back in Allentown of being involved with the Pennsylvania Catholic Conference for well over 20 years. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess I kind of cut my teeth on advocacy and the involvement in state Catholic conferences. So I, I always had an interest in, in uh uh, being able to bring about that union, but also in in advocating for things for the voiceless, for for things that that are are good in our culture, as as we say, uh, faith enriches public life, and mm-hmm. so uh, I, I felt that that's uh, our faith at work appropriately to get engaged in the public square and public life, yeah. and so uh, obviously the bishops' conference has both that notion of communion and coming together to look at issues directly related to the life of the church, but also how we as a church can have uh, an impact and a positive effect on uh, the culture in which we live. So uh, I I had an interest in that. And um, I guess I, 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 maybe from my parents got the ability of not to, to, to say no, to say yes to things if you can. And, I just kept saying yes. Yeah. <laughs> From the vantage point of having said yes and having been um, in the room, uh, you know, in, in all of those roles, I think there are some Catholics who look at um, the Bishop's Conference and they, and they, I've even heard bishops say this, say, this is a very expensive proposition with a lot of sort of bureaucratic elements. And is it, is it worth it? Is the conference as it's sort of configured serving the church? What, what would be your sort of insider's view on that? Well, uh, JD, I think that's a very good question. And, and uh, I spend an awful lot of time in general at seeing how can I be a good steward? Yeah. So that's not just true of the Bishop's Conference. It's true in general of the church. We, it's a healthy thing for us to examine exactly how we can be good s- stewards. To, to put it another way, it's not my money, or at least the portion of it isn't going to be that I do donate. It's not right. going to be enough to, to, to fund the conference. But, um, but uh, I would have to say, like anything else, what would life be like without mm-hmm. this? Mm-hmm. So uh, people at times might say within an archdiocese, uh, gee, uh, you're going to have a men's conference or a ladies' women's conference. That's awfully expensive to bring people together. Mm -hmm. And there is expense involved in it. Uh, But what would life be like if we didn't come together that way? Mm -hmm. Uh, People could say, well, my parish church is a great, great expense. Mm -hmm. And there's even differences on on how much beauty and how uplifting that church is. And there's legitimate arguments about what's the right amount 
to use for, for that or for um, service of, of those who are poor. So uh, in that midst, though, I think we, we do have to say the question, well, what would it look like if you didn't have that? Right. And so I'd be one who would speak not in favor of just endless spending of money, but rather of being a good steward. Let me give you another example. Um, here in the Archdiocese of Louisville, uh, four years ago, we built uh, what I'm sitting in, the Archdiocesan Pastoral Center. Well, it's, it's very parish-based. We took a school that uh, was no longer uh, being used because of other schools that were close at hand. And so we renovated it. It was a win-win situation. We're right on the parish, in fact, this morning, I had the mass, the morning mass for uh, Holy Name Parish, which is uh, where we are. Cool. Well, in the next year or so, we're going to be building, uh, or I should say Archbishop Shelton is going to be building uh, a new facility for Catholic charities. Mm -hmm. And that will be right on the grounds of Holy Name Parish, mm -hmm. which is not too far from uh Churchill Downs. Have you heard of the Kentucky Derby? Indeed, I've heard a little bit of the and, Kentucky Derby. Uh, and so um, you'd say, well, do you really need a building? Uh, well, if, if we don't bring together the people who are serving, uh, we're not going to serve well. Mm -hmm. So that um, I keep telling our people here in Louisville, Archdiocese is 110 parishes helping one another. Mm -hmm. But we do need places where we convene. Yeah. And come together. Yeah. Well, I, I would say in some fashion, the same would be true uh, with the bishops conference. Mm -hmm. So I, I would be in favor, of course, of, of the benefits of the bishops conference. And maybe more than others, I see close at hand the benefits of it. And maybe what would happen if we didn't have mm -hmm. that ability for me as a bishop to come together with other bishops. Yeah, what would be what would be some of the the biggest sort of immediate things that we would notice in the church if we didn't have the bishops' conference? Well, well, I think our advocacy. I've been I was on, on the uh, the the pro life committee, the bishops' committee for pro life activities for nine years, and then I was a consultant after that. I almost felt like I was getting close to being a Supreme Court justice, <laughs> if, et cetera. Uh, but without without the uh, the benefit of the uh, strategic plans and uh, just the plan that Archbishop Nauman began last the last couple of years of walking with moms, mm -hmm. th that has had a major effect on the archdiocese here because mm -hmm. we've taken that example to heart and implemented mm -hmm. it. Yeah. So that would be one example. Uh, you're very close at heart to um, issues related to persons with disability. Mm -hmm. And uh, the bishops uh, issued a statement on uh, uh, the church's involvement with persons and persons involvement, persons with disabilities involvement within the church. Yeah. It goes back to the late seventies, as you yeah. know, and without uh, the, the church's involvement, we may not have had uh, the guidelines yeah. implemented on parish levels. Yeah. So uh, there, that's just two examples that I tended to be very much involved in. Well, thanks for that. Um, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, you had the good fortune of not being USCCB president in 2018 when the scandal of Cardinal McCarrick uh, kind of emerged and all of the issues related to that had to be dealt with. And you know, I, I felt uh, very badly for, for Cardinal DiNardo having to uh, uh, 
be the, the, the point person on all of that. How, how did the scandals of 2018, um, even, you know, you're from Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, how did those things affect you personally? Mm-hmm. And, and how did they affect you in the, as, a, as an archbishop, as a diocesan bishop? Well, let me let me talk first about the archdiocese and then and then personally uh, with the archdiocese. I think we wisely uh, did follow up on our own with a thorough report of transparency. Mm-hmm. We hired uh, a professional investigator. Uh, in fact, um, when Archbishop Shelton had his uh, announcement uh, on on February 8th, I thought at the press conference, someone might ask me about this. Let me go back and look at exactly when we we uh, issued our report. And it was uh, February 8th, 2019, exactly mm. three years before that. Wow. So uh, and that was really in response to the renewed involvement uh, because of the Pennsylvania grand jury mm-hmm. a decision and because of, of uh, the, the Theodore McCarrick uh, situation. So uh, I think on a local level, I think it fostered uh, a humble transparency. Mm-hmm. It also fostered a, a renewed effort uh, with regard to safe environment. And um, I was worried, as many people were, about what I would call um, a fatigue. Yeah, People, even the worst of difficulties, people can get very complacent and comfortable with things. Yeah. This was a renewed effort. And maybe that's the, the silver lining if there is one mm-hmm. on that. Um, I think personally, uh, I guess when I read the grand jury, uh, the grand jury uh, report in Pennsylvania, there were people on there who I knew mm-hmm. in yeah. the seminary. And I thought, boy, have, was I naive? Right. And uh, my heart went out because it got very specific. It was very painful reading Mm -hmm. uh, these reports. And yet uh, the church needs humbly and truthfully to be able to address things. I tell people within the archdiocese, uh, we're a family. Yeah. And every family has its challenges. And you don't solve family problems by ignoring uh, or, or pretending that they're not there, you do have to address them. Not everybody will be immediately satisfied that everybody's done enough. I understand mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But as a family, you do have to approach things. And uh, that's what I've had to do. You obviously, as an archbishop, have a good sense of whether the, the, the measures that the church is implementing are working, will, will work. I mean, uh, do you think we're on the right track? You mean with regard to the whole issue of sexual abuse? Yeah, vos estis lux um, mundi and, the, and, and these kinds I, of I think we are on, on the, the right track. Uh, I have worried uh, when I read in the paper about recent situations of uh, priests and, and, and even lay leaders who get involved in Internet pornography yeah. and things like that. Um, I guess it's the power of addiction mm-hmm. and the sinfulness of addiction. Mm-hmm. Because I think to myself, how could someone not be aware right. of the great uh, uh, harm that right. they may cause to, to people? How could they not now be aware of that? And yet, uh, I, I, I guess because of the power of addictions and the power of the sinfulness that, that can be so much part of our individual lives, uh, we do have to be vigilant. But But we also have to uh with with joy say 
Christ gives us the grace to be able to serve well. So I think at the end of the day, I'm sure we will continue to improve the way in which we as a church both uh, exercise good, ethically sound pastoral care of people, uh, and also I hope will be an example for our culture. We, we weren't, I was hoping back uh, when the charter occurred, and I was still in Knoxville, that as painful as it was, and it was very painful, that we would not only help our church, but we would be an example to help our society. Yeah. I guess we've done that, but it's hard to see. It's still too early mm-hmm. to see uh, how that is at work. Because, uh, so, but, but I still have hope that that will be the case. You, you had the experience when you were in Knoxville of dealing with Episcopal sexual abuse um, earlier than most, because in 2002, your predecessor in, in Knoxville, Bishop Anthony O'Connell, admitted that when he was a priest, he had sexually abused minors, and you had to address that in the diocese. I'm given to understand he was much beloved in the diocese, that people respected him, and suddenly they had this very difficult admission. How, how did you handle that as a bishop? Um, well, with great pain and great difficulty, but with great honesty. Mm-hmm. That's all I uh, all I could do at that time as I was learning uh, is is be honest with people, uh, l- uh, let them know what I knew, mm-hmm. uh, let them know that there is a, a, a firm commitment on my part as the archbishop to act decisively in uh, creating safe environment and in not tolerating uh, abuses um, in seeking to listen to uh, survivors, uh, victim survivors. Um, But it was a very painful situation. I I would akin it to uh, almost the the pastoral approach I had to learn as a a, a young priest when I was helping someone who just lost a loved one. Mm, And you'd say, well, did you get that right? Well, I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because in many ways, every death and every grief is somewhat unique. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. and it's it's painful because people will say, "Well, uh, tell me this, and there may be things I can't reveal that would be uh, of of uh, of a confidential nature, be- only because it's it's part of a person's uh, cl- uh, what would you call a personnel file, or part of a process, or something in, like in, that." In, where, it's yeah. true of everything, but yeah. but I think the effort has been made to be transparent mm-hmm. and to reveal. Uh, uh, as much as physically possible, and I think the the report that we gave three years ago would be a a sample of what what we've done. I I stand by that report. I'm glad to hear it. I, I've saved Archbishop the topic that I actually want to talk about the most until the end, um, and it's uh, it's what we have in common that you and I both um, uh, our lives have been transformed by loving someone with Down syndrome. In, in, in my case, I have two children with Down syndrome. And in your case, you, you had um, your brother, George, who was uh, a person of tremendous influence in your life. Yeah. Can, you, can you tell our, our listeners about your brother? Sure. Well, let me begin by saying just uh, a month ago on January 27th was the uh, 20th anniversary of the death of my brother, George. Hmm. And I, I got to say, I don't think anyone came close to influencing my life the way uh, Georgie did. And um, you talk about Christ working through others. So uh, my brother George was five years older than I. By the time I looked around and saw life, he was already in school. 
mm-hmm. and uh, went to our local. I was in a s- small ethnic parish, a Slovak parish back in in Pennsylvania, and he he went to grade school. Uh, my mom said for discipline. I think we would say today for socialization. It mm-hmm. wasn't. There was no unique program. I right. guess. We can say he was mainstreamed, mm-hmm. uh, but when our, our little school closed, I was in third grade and he was in seventh grade, and uh, there was no special education programs at that time in our, our little coal town, so um, Georgie just stayed at home, mm-hmm. and I can always think about the fact that my buddies and I would learn something in fourth grade, and I'd come home, and we'd try to teach it to Georgie, <laughs> and and uh, he was ever patient <laughs> with us, but he had a natural ability to uh, to be able to learn things. He was a great sports fan. He, he could tell you all kinds of statistics. He had a, a great sense of humanity. Mm. And so when, uh, and we, we vacationed together. Mm-hmm. We would always vacation together after I became a priest. Um, when our mother died, in uh, 1989, I was then a pastor of a parish as well as director of Catholic Charities. And uh, uh, the bishop, I had asked if it would be all right if my brother Georgie would come and live in the rectory. And he, he, he of course, was, was very good with that. So, um, so George and I lived together for about 11 years in two different rectories and in a, a bishop's house. Mm-hmm. And uh, people would say when I was going on vacation, uh, uh, Father, we're going to miss you, but we're really going to miss George. <laughs> so, so there was just such a sense. I, I wrote an article for the, for the local paper that was picked up by a Catholic Digest. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Mm-hmm. They called it the joy of Georgie. Mm-hmm. And it was about the experience of George coming into the rectory and transforming a house into a home. Mm-hmm. It, it's, uh, it, it's very beautiful. He had, uh, he had great, great uh gifts of, of joining with people and he learned certain things i'll give you one little anecdote uh somebody said to him well georgie in a big crowd you you seem to do so well you talk to everybody and he said easy uh my mom told me uh chit chat just say a little bit to each person <laughs> and i you can't imagine every cocktail party or something i go to i always think of sure yeah. my dear mother saying to georgie now don't just talk to one person but go to each person and sure enough he gained uh great skills he was yeah. very popular mm. you know you 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 have something in common with my youngest son my son daniel is um uh is younger than our children with down syndrome and yeah. sometimes i wonder uh, archbishop Will he, as he grows up, be frustrated with the amount of time or attention that his older siblings require? Will it be a source of, you know, resentment for him or something like that? What 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 was your own experience of, of that element, a brother who needed more than yeah. you? Yeah, well, everybody's going to be different. Sure. And I don't want to presume that. But um, I, I would have to say that I don't think I ever gave a thought to not having attention. I, I think I was more thinking that I, I kind of acted more like an older brother. Mm-hmm. My brother, George, would have resented me saying that. By sure. Yeah, yeah. I know that. However, I think there, there was, uh, uh, as I look back on it, mm-hmm. I think I was, was seeing myself as becoming more responsible more quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I used an anecdote with that talk that I gave uh, to the uh, 
uh, a Catholic university and you were good enough to give a response to it. And it was about a grandmother who came up to me a few years ago and she said, uh, my granddaughter has a question for you. And I said, oh, what is that? And the granddaughter was only maybe six or seven years old. She said, why was my uh, brother born uh, with autism? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I don't know. I said, you and I, I said, did you know that my brother was born with Down syndrome? She said, yes. I said, well, you and I'll have a lot to ask when we get to heaven, God willing. But I said, let me ask, let me ask you a question. Uh, Do you love your brother? And she said, yes. And I said, well, you will never be the same. You will be better because of your brother. And that's a partial answer. Mm -hmm. Mm You've talked before about learning from your brother, something which I think is very powerful, learning from your brother about lingering with another person, yes. about a presence that lingers. Can, can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, well, you know, I discovered uh, that at the end of the uh, St. Luke's account of the, of the visitation, when our Blessed Mother went to visit Elizabeth, it was always there, but it just didn't hit me until the one time I read it, it said, and, and Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I always pictured right. Blessed Mother going in, coming out, kind of the way I go into a hospital room and come right out. Like it's a weekend visitation or something. Yes, know. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so it made me reflect more about this notion of what it means to linger with someone. Mm-hmm. And just to spend time with them. Uh, I tell the anecdote, which is true of my brother Georgie, that when I was a pastor back in in Catasauqua, I would Saturday morning get Georgie up and I'd say, now, George, we have and I'd list the eight things we have to do this morning. Come on, we got to get moving. And I would list the whole thing. He would turn to me and he would say, good morning. And all of a sudden, uh, it slowed me down mm-hmm. to be able to say, okay, he needs his coffee. We mm-hmm. got <laughs> to just uh, maybe be present with one another before we start to go through our, our uh, rat race of, of a laundry list of things to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think my brother Georgie uh, slowed me down and made me appreciate what it means to linger with someone and to enjoy the presence of someone to enjoy mm-hmm. uh, oh, um, watching a, a, a television program that he loved. He loved the Fonz. Mm-hmm. I forget what that was, what program that was, but we would watch the Fonz in the evening. And yeah. I, I, I got to know the, uh, the schedule at that time for uh, what was on Tuesday night. And I hadn't done, done that since, since I was in grade school. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that well, lingering is, I think, important. And I think it's especially important for, for people who are, are saying, uh, gee, I want to I solve this problem quickly. Yeah. And I tried to, de- to describe it as uh, this notion of from, I think, uh, that uh, I'm trying to remember uh, the, the, the philosopher uh, who said it first, but the, this notion of seeing life as a mystery to be lived mm-hmm. rather than a problem to be solved. Mm-hmm. I think that that notion is, is uh, I think, uh, central. Yeah. Well, Archbishop, it has really been a joy to spend this hour kind of lingering with you and 
hearing about and reflecting on your your ministry and your life as a priest. Thank, thank you so much for this time. And You're welcome, J.D. It's good to be with you. Thank you for your work. Well, thank you. Thanks. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and J.D. Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I was joined this week by my special guest, Archbishop Joseph Kurtz. Archbishop, thanks for being here, and listeners, thanks for listening.